I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Rad. And I'm Paul. And welcome to Game for Anything, the podcast where we're disgustingly down for whatever comes around. Today's episode, Paul gets low key fashionable. That was a pun yeah. on low key the show. Thank you for that. Uh, and also low key, as in like not, you know, it's like under the table, you know, kind of. Thank you. Subtle. Love it. Chimpanzees go through <laughs> menopause, and Meta desperately wants your credit card details. Yep, it's an absolutely packed episode of Game for Anything, and boy, do we have all the opinions. So, Paul, you consider yourself to be a little bit of a fashionable guy. I've seen the clothes you wear. You've got. Bright colors, strange cuts, uh, a mix of textiles. <laughs> mm, some people would call that a very confused aesthetic, but I call it ADHD. So basically, <laughs> I, yeah, I love fashion. I take fashion very seriously. In fact, Rad, a couple of years back, I was writing for Junkie and I got sent along to cover Melbourne Spring Fashion Week, which, by the way, <gasps> yeah, being a big old geek who likes fashion and has never admitted that out loud. So the runway goes around these benches where only the richest people sit. You know, you're at the Melbourne Town Hall and there's press at the end, hundreds of cameras going off. And I was there as press and I got ushered into this middle area, sitting there in this little three-piece suit, watching, you know, designs from Sass and Bide, kind of waltz by. And I realized that fashion is extremely nerdy. The fashion industry is is a very, very pernickety little place and it's full of influences and throwbacks and references and in-jokes. And it's such a incredibly exclusive place but they're all just big nerds and I think once I realized that it was very freeing so how are you with fashion I think that I love fashion but I typically haven't been someone who personally like puts my own body in it right. and I think that that's a whole different discussion and conversation about bodies and self-image and money as well like nice clothes can be very very expensive yeah. but it is something that I like and appreciate and for me I think it's from a design perspective so much of what I love about everything that we talk about on this podcast which is tech games it's about design for me. Yeah. And obviously that's a really, really big component of fashion and aesthetics, which is, again, to me, under design. Yeah. And it also is a form of personal expression, which is a really, which is in a weird way, a means of storytelling. And obviously I love storytelling, but one of my favorite things in video games is basically playing dress ups. I mean, I will, I'm a fashion souls guy, Rad. I will wear, I will wear cloth armor if it looks good, even when I'm playing like a, <laughs> like a plate wearing class. I love <laughs> fashion and we talked a couple of episodes ago about the predicament i have in Fortnite, which is basically just a i mean it's a it's a game of dress-ups so i was in savile row at christmas and savile row is where they make all the cool suits in kingsman that's where james bond gets his oh. suits made yeah it's the it's a, like a little laneway in london where you know 200 year old suit shops will bring you in and measure your inseam and make you these beautiful suits and i saw in one of these clothing stores 
but I saw Tom Hiddleston in there getting measured for a suit. And Tom Hiddleston is one of those unusually beautiful men who looks sort of like a drawing of an elf. You don't agree? You're wincing at the... No, I think he looks... No? I think he looks strange. I feel a bit mean saying that. He's fine. I just I just, I just, just don't know that I agree with your representation of him as like an exceptionally beautiful person. I think as with so many well-regarded British men, he looks like a little weirdy, but he wears it very well. And part of the... Re and let's face it, we can relate. So he wears... He wears clothes extremely well, and he is the star of Loki, which is frankly probably the best thing to come out of the MCU since the MCU began. It's just a wonderful show, and season two is out right now on Disney+. And I wanted to talk with Christine Wada, who is the... She does all of the fashion for the show. She designs the looks, she curates, she's an incredible resource. And so I sat down with Christine Wada to talk with her about Tom Hiddleston's shoulders and also clothing. <laughs> About measuring Tom Hiddleston's inseam. Yes, what was that like for you? Could I maybe give it a shot next time you're doing it? Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Yes, hello. Hi, Paul. I wanted to start with uniforms because I've worked a lot of terrible retail jobs before and we've been forced to wear all kinds of, you know, like crappy textiles and boxy fabrics and whatnot. How do you start making a uniform interesting, if not sexy because you've really done that in this show well i tried to take all those things that are really recognizable in a uniform say a collar or whatever and just put sort of a surrealistic twist on all of it and then i guess in doing that it takes it into a place where you're not so you don't have to get really tricky you don't have to get into star trek territory with those uniforms <laughs> <laughs> yeah and who doesn't think that James Bond from the 60s isn't a sort of, or Madman is not a sexy look. I mean, that's just uh, so classic. I think all of those classic elements cannot be overlooked when trying to define sexy, right? And I think it just helps the audience because it still is all recognizable. There's still, it's still a silhouette that we find recognizable. The whole look of Loki is a very Truffaut-esque new wave sort of, you know, it's a, it's a place out of time and yet it refers to very specific touchstones design-wise. But when you were approached, did they say, do whatever you want? Or did they have a really specific kind of style guide in mind for you? Well, Michael Waldron had written in the script, he wrote Mad Men meets Blade Runner. Right. And I think that that, that depending on, you know, each person, but for me, that became a really uh, great launching point. And I think for the production designer that was chosen as well, who I think we all sort of took that simple sentence and we were really in sync with what that meant. Like our interpretation of that was very similar. And it was a great launching point for everybody. Blade Runner and Mad Men, great influence. But what eras influence you as a designer? Because fashion is, I mean, it's there's so much to draw from and choose from, but what inspires you? Across the board, whether I'm doing futuristic or if I'm doing modern, I really do always go the timeless thing. Um, whether it's modern, period, or futuristic, I think that just in terms of my personal aesthetic, I'm always trying to think of what could stand the test of time. And even doing, so say you're doing the 1970s for me, my tendency would be to choose not the biggest polyester collar 
and to go for something that just lands in the middle. And, and I think that that's true for futuristic for me as well, or that sort of TVA could be anywhere, anytime costume. It's still, it's trying to find aesthetically always what is the common thread throughout all time. I'm just also interested when I see fashion that evolves in a futuristic sense, where you take a thing like a collar or a lapel or whatever, and you just tweak it slightly. I remember seeing Aliens when they gave Paul Reiser's kind of corporate douchebag character, this sort of weird, all that was different was a slightly different collar. Yeah. You know, just, just just a slight tweak because certain things just don't change in fashion, right? Certain things were always classic. Yes, they don't. It's incredible how there always are just these through lines. And when, you, and when you're trying to sell a period, I am just not a big fan of tra- trying to oversell a period. I always think of a period as how I imagine it in my own mind. Like when you go back and you look at the 80s movie, you aren't hit over the head generally with like, oh my God, like everything's got a huge shoulder pad. That is just my aesthetic and was important to me in in Loki, especially season two where we did do time travel. Just felt like it was really important that it stayed kind of the neutral version of things throughout Mm. and that the color palette stayed pretty restrained, just like it does through the rest of the series. Because time travel can get weird. I've worked on sets before. I know that certain casts can be like, yeah, sure, do whatever, I'm fine. But I I feel like there's got to be some cast who are really into the design aspect of things. Who on the cast of Loki has a real yen for fashion and really kind of wants to get involved with you in a more collaborative sense? I think everybody's really hands-on on on Loki, but more from a character standpoint than a fashion Mm -hmm. standpoint. Uh, I don't feel like there was big vanity involved with any of the characters. (laughs) I feel like there was a real genuine interest in finding the character and staying on track for the character. Of course, you do want to look good and you want the proportions to be right. But ultimately, I think every single person wanted the costume to facilitate the character and also what the character had to do. It had to make sense in its environment. It had to make sense. It has to make sense for what it does, which I think is really important. And sometimes that involves it being awkward, by the way, like the temporal core suit, you need it to be awkward, or you might want Renslayer's outfit to make her stand differently because she has a corset just to throw her into the 1890s even more and make her feel awkward in that period. Or you want it to work because somebody has to like roll down a hill when you need to know that they can roll down a hill or whatever, right? So there's so many things you work together with with an actor. And I think that they all collaborate really well on this show. I've only got time for one more super quick question. And this is kind of unrelated, but your eye for fashion is unparalleled, Christine, and I really appreciate your aesthetic. So I have to ask, my co-host and I are getting a uh, photo shoot done in about a week or so, and it's very fashion oriented. Do you have any general advice for us in terms of like crafting a coherent, bold look she would kill me if i didn't ask you uh, oh so it's ah and w- yeah. interior, exterior what is it what's the oh, I, lo- I, I love this i love this uh yeah it's kind of a bit of both but we've got a photographer who does very bright colorful stuff and we both like sort of sharp distinct looks so i was watching loki and seeing hiddleston's trench and just how do you go about crafting a look that instantly catches the eye because you've done that the whole time in loki i think you should just do it through color i think you should i think you should stick to a really class you should stick to classic shapes and just say it through color but it's also what a person can pull off and i'd say right. because you have the mustache you can go for it you can go for <laughs> it you definitely do you should go for it you should just get the cut co- 
I think you could do it through color combinations or pattern combinations. You like to wear pattern. Oh yeah, I do. And she's got pink hair. So I think we got some really bright it's stuff. Perfect. And then up. just stay pretty classic in the silhouette and the proportions of what you're wearing. Don't get, try, don't try to get all weird with that because <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to look at that five years from now and be like, Oh my God, what was I thinking? Right. And it's always the silhouette when people stray from a good silhouette that you look back five years later and you're like, but it, a color, you're not going to be like, why did I wear blue? You know? No, I think it's really good advice. And I honest, I guarantee you five years from now, no one's going to be looking back at Loki and questioning any of your fashion choices, Christine. So thank you for humoring me. And thank you for spending time with us this morning. It's been an absolute delight. And congratulations on an incredible series. Thank you so much. Well, I'm glad to hear that we got stamps of approval on just like, I guess, who we are as people and how we look. That feels good. Feels great. And you know what's nice now? I don't know if this is strictly legal, Rad, but uh, we actually had a fashion shoot. We went and did a full-blown photo shoot. We went and got photos taken. And actually, am I allowed to say that Christine Wada, like, designed our fashion shoot? Is that too far? Is that too far to go? I don't know that she's going to hear this. I think you can say whatever you like. Okay, well, (laughs) then, frankly, yeah, okay. So we got an award-winning fashion designer who styled our entire shoot. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. And by that, we mean we chose to wear... uh, loud prints, block colours, etc. Yes, which we would have done anyway. Honestly, it was such a interesting experience to put ourselves on front street fashion-wise, but I think we looked all right. I think we looked all right. Yeah, I think we did. I mean, it's crazy to think that anyone can actually just go and hire a photographer and a hair and makeup artist and get a photo shoot done, which is literally what we did. Like, yes, we're <laughs> making a podcast and we need photos and headshots because mm. of our jobs. Yeah. But anyone can do that. It's yeah. it's wild when you think about it. You can literally, I mean, Rebecca Black Madden album. Like you can just pay people <laughs> to make your dreams come true. It's Look, when a Saudi prince can pay Beyonce to perform, money money oh. can solve most pro- most problems, I think, but look, <laughs> it was a really fun experience. I mean, I really enjoyed even if just tangentially and quite unprofessionally being Kind of, sort of, but not really dressed by an award-winning fashion designer. Even though I had not yet heard the interview, I would like to say that I personally picked the clothing that I did purely because she told me to. Yeah, agreed. And if you want to see those new beautiful photos of us, they will be up at some point, somewhere. <laughs> somewhere? At some, in some manner of publication or not? If you would like to see us looking hot, uh, you're fresh out of luck, but if you would like to see photos from that photo shoot, <laughs> oh. I'll, post them on, I'll post them on Instagram or something. But yeah, it was a really cool experience. Uh, excited to share those with you. Oh, and by the way, our photos were taken by Michelle Grace Hunter, who recently photographed Amy Shark for the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. So I'm not saying we look as good as Amy Shark on Rolling Stone, but we don't not look as good. She did also say that we were in like the top 1% of people that are good at having their photos taken. She did say that. She did say that. Yeah. She could have just been being nice, but I am going to take that all the way to the bank. It's not like I slipped her an extra 50 to be nice to us. Honestly, that came off. That, that was on her own dime. So uh, I think <laughs> I think we might be, I think we might be models now. Yeah, I think that is how it works. Well, you know what? I was wearing clothes uh, in some of the shots by a Melbourne designer. So that is kind of like being a model, right? Like I was technically kind of wearing designer clothes. Yeah. And then you wore those designer clothes onto the set of Q&A where you f***ing nailed it, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I'm i very proud of myself that I didn't massively start fights, even though I know that's what the show is for, because I'm trying to be a calmer, kinder person. And there were fights that I wanted to start, but I didn't 
Instead, I was adult and professional and I let something slide, but also spoke my mind. Yes. You know who else speaks their mind? Chimpanzees with menopause. That's not a segue that works. Jesus Christ. So we have a little document where we just throw in uh, what we're going to be talking about. And this one's me. And Paul doesn't know what it's about. So all he has literally is chimpanzees go through menopause. Which I look, I guess, I guess I'd assumed, but uh, wait, were they not meant really? to? Really? You, you assumed? Is this not something they were allowed to do? And now we found out they've actually been doing it anyway? Like, what's the, what's the story here? Funnily enough, the kind of traditional knowledge or conversation has been mammals other than some whales and humans don't go through menopause. That's like the quote unquote fun fact that people would tout out. Now, this is also kind of been proven to not be true. And there's more discussion around that now. And the idea essentially is that no, all female mammals do come to a point where they stop being able to reproduce Mm. with age. But then also some people define menopause as the stopping of a period, um, no more menstruation. Mm. And funnily enough, humans are like kind of the only ones that menstruate. Well, not the only ones, sorry. Most mammals don't menstruate. They don't shed the uteral lining. Mm. They just reabsorb it, which I think is really unfair that we got the short end of the stick on that one. Especially if you don't want to have kids. There's a whole bunch of stuff that just doesn't, you can't opt out of these things. But the fact that, I mean, dogs get periods, right? I believe so, yes. Okay. But a lot of mammals apparently don't. But that's neither here nor there if we're defining menopause. (laughs) (laughs) Which apparently we are. If we're defining menopause as the stopping of the ability to reproduce because of age, then apparently pretty much all mammals go through it. But an Arizona State University study has recently been published in the academic journal Science that shows first-time signs of menopause through hormonal changes being found in wild non-human primates, which are chimpanzees. And the reason that I wanted to bring this up, not only is it interesting, Paul, but they had to collect chimpanzee piss. (laughs) Well, someone has to do that job. There are certain jobs I would never do. I guess, look, I'll be honest, Wee Wee's like not the worst it's not the worst job in the world. But they have to catch it. Oh, like live? Yeah, because these are wild animals. They're not captive. They have to... I believe it's basically like getting a bucket uh, and just aiming to catch the stream. Sure. And then you just run back. It's still warm. It's a weird day. It's a weird day in the world of science. Have you seen collection of horse urine? I believe they're quite forceful in their expulsion of said liquid. Yeah. Uh, no, I've not seen it happen live. Have you? Um, I ooh, I don't think I've seen it live. I think I've seen cow cow live. But same same kind of concept. It's just like a bucket on a long stick and you try and try and aim and catch the stream and i just think science is incredible that uh there are these very distinguished people doing important research that's Mm. incredibly interesting and teaches us so much about the world ourselves like chimpanzees are one of the most studied primates in the world and we're only just now learning about their hormonal changes and menopause but at the same time like these this field of incredible research and prestige also includes things like catching urine. I think that's exciting. It all comes back to piss. And what's great is some inventions don't need to be finessed. A bucket is fine the way it is. A bucket is a bucket. Although you'd probably need, because chimpanzees are one of the few primates that walk on their hind legs. That would make them a little easier to collect from, although maybe a squat's better. You know what? It doesn't really matter. What's interesting to me is that chimpanzees can live into their 80s. I know that much. And women live longer than men. 
So I'm hoping that this generation of chimpanzee women enjoy a childless life. If they don't want to have kids, they don't have to have kids, right? Like, why not enjoy your 40s onwards and just... uh... I think this is the point at which you're maybe over-assigning sentience and anthropomorphizing (laughs) these animals. Sure. I'm not sure that there's that... Like, Don't get me wrong. There's a Mm. lot of social structure. There's a lot of intelligence. Yeah. But... I don't know that they are running on that level of higher level thinking so much as they are just instinct. Oh, to be a chimpanzee pissing on a scientist. Or near one in the hopes that they will just move that bucket <laughs> a little bit closer. Just a bit of human contact. Uh, okay, I think that, is that enough? Have we have we fulfilled our uh, obligatory quarter of minutes spent talking about chimpanzee piss? Should we move on to the next topic? I think we have, I think we have. Speaking of hot streams of piss-like stuff, uh, Meta. <laughs> That was good, actually. I liked that one. That was good. Thank you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Meta, uh, look, Meta comes up occasionally in the news and every time it does, you pull a face which is a little bit like somebody who has just caught a stream a little bit close. So (laughs) what's happened to Meta? What have they done now? Gosh, when you look at the world of big tech, most of the conversations tend to be around these social media giants and shit that they're up to. Mm -hmm. And Meta is no different. They are obviously the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, and they are now looking at launching a subscription-based version of the platforms uh, to remove ads. This is... A slightly complicated conversation. Like if you you hear that headline, you're like, oh, bother. Uh, But apparently they are looking to do this because in January, Meta was fined 390 million euro by regulators for breaking EU data rules around ads. And this to me is kind of a very interesting, almost precedent setting case because the EU was basically saying, you can't force people to consent to having their data collected by saying you either have to accept or leave the platform. Like, yeah. you, you can't do that. Mm. Um, so <laughs> Meta's like really genius fix to this problem is to say, okay, your options in the EU, European Economic Area and Switzerland, so this isn't uh, going to be rolled out globally at this stage, mm. your options are give us your data and get a free service that's supported by ads or pay for it yourself. Every time something like this happens, because I'm already on the brink of quitting social media anyway, I think we're all sort of jack of these different platforms to different degrees. And every time they do something like this, I assume that we're all going to bail. But we never do. It's like, how high is the ceiling for our tolerance for this kind of weird inching towards whatever capitalist hellscape social media is going to end up being? I mean, look, I know, Rad. We all know that advertising is a realistic aspect of being a creative today you actually have to you have to internalize that but i do distinctly remember not to put on an old man hat or anything i distinctly remember the day that ads appeared on instagram and i went oh that's not cool and yet now 
Now, sometimes when I mention something like Kylie Minogue's Padam and it appears, the album appears for sale on vinyl on my feed, I'm like, you know what? I think I wanted that. Yeah, that's the problem. All of this data collection, and this isn't just about ads. I feel like this is across all data collection. Mm. The problem is that it is being used often to serve the consumer. It's being used to give people stuff that they want that they maybe haven't thought about in a way that can almost start to feel like a friend recommending you something because they know you like other things. And that's attractive. Like, that is good. But the problem really comes in when you start looking at privacy, the way that that data is unsold, and just how much data they are collecting, often without your consent or knowledge. And it's really hard to stem the flow. Like, I think if there were more choices and people could say hey, I actually don't want my data collected, I'm willing to give up those really, really excellent ad recommendations, then people would feel quite differently about it. But there's, as the EU has kind of noted, there's no option to opt out. I agree. First of all, nice usage of the phrase stem the flow in the middle there. That was good. I did think about that. I did, yeah. Very very on topic. Uh, And secondly, we all like having things recommended to us. I think when a friend recommends a thing, there is a sort of there's an interesting relationship there because maybe they're going, hey, I'll lend you or whatever. It seems it is a purely transactional version. And I also think it's interesting because there is a point in our lives where we just want to feel heard and listened to. And there's something interesting about an algorithm (laughs) that, you know what I mean? You just want people to shut up and actually listen. When someone goes, I know you like this thing. I got you this thing. It feels thoughtful. When the algorithm recommends something I was mentioning off mic from three rooms away yesterday and it puts it bang in my feed, I start to get alarmed by the specificity. Well, that's interesting, actually, because apparently there is no evidence that any of these data collection kind of Mm. bodies, any of your Meadows or Google or whatever, are actually listening to you. They're not using microphone data to find this stuff out. And that, in some ways, shows just how scarily accurate their algorithms are and also just how extensively they're collecting other breadcrumbs because Mm. they're able to collate this other information about you without that microphone data to be that scarily accurate okay because i know people who put like blue tack over their webcam because they're worried someone will hack that and watch them i know that people like literally put their phones in drawers because they think someone's listening and like transcribing and you're saying that is completely unfounded uh no because people can hack your webcam (laughs) (laughs) okay okay (laughs) people can hack your webcam and also obviously there are things like voice assistants like siri if you use that is always listening etc apple has really robust kind of privacy um, policies and they've shown time and time again that they will stand up to government bodies and other people who are trying to kind of get that information. They've done a pretty good job leading the way in those sort of privacy areas. Mm. What I'm saying is that there is currently no evidence that shows that microphone data is being used in these algorithmic servings of ads. They are finding out what you want based on things like GPS positioning, purchase history, Mm. who you hang out with, who you're friends with, who you talk to. So they, for example, might know that we talk to each other a lot. We spend time together. Mm. And then they might see that you are searching up something that aligns with things that I have in my own algorithm. Mm -hmm. And they might figure out from that that you're looking to buy a gift from me. Like that is the extent to which they can pull tiny, tiny bits of information together. Honestly, we're at a point where the algorithm is going to get very complicated. I do know that people believe in ghosts and horoscopes. And so I guess 
I guess believing that the microphone is always on and actively listening to you is, I mean, it, it seems to me a little bit presumptuous that you're that important, but maybe we are. Maybe we're all important in some way. Maybe the algorithm is listening. Maybe there's a small man sitting next to a computer taking notes about everything you say. Paul, why are you spreading misinformation? Because it's uh, 2023 and I'm just, uh, you know, trying to add to the ball. <laughs> Look, the thing is, as they say, when the service is free, that means that you're the product. And, you know, we've seen that come to fruition time and time again with social media. And, mm. uh, you know, something's got to change. We need some better legislation. We need tougher laws, better regulation. I think that seeing, you know, regulatory bodies like the EU not scared to go after the big guns like Meta is a really positive thing. And I think that there needs to be more transparency as to how our data is collected. And in particular, I think that facial recognition is a really scary area of, uh, of privacy and data collection. And I don't agree with its use in uh, major uh, kind of stores like Bunnings and Kmart, and I don't agree with the cameras in the self-service checkouts at Woolworths. So I don't think that people should be subject to their biometric data being collected like that. And there's a lot of issues with facial recognition and its ability to accurately identify people. And relying on that kind of data uh, can reinforce issues of discrimination and it's it's dangerous kind of technology that shouldn't be used so flippantly and it certainly shouldn't be used by police forces. You're absolutely right, madam. Thank you so much for calling Neil Mitchell. Uh, I'll be sure to put you through as soon as possible. You'd be great on Talkback. I should start calling Talkback Radio and just acting old. Do it. What are they going to do? I don't have time for that kind of stuff, but I do have time to hear one more story from you, Paul. Absolutely. So I don't know if you're familiar with the notion of escape rooms. What a stupid thing. Of course you are. Everyone's done an escape room, right? I am a sicko when it comes to escape rooms. I've I've done two, yep. and the last one that I did, I was so hyped up with just energy mm. and excitement and like the thrill of the hunt and then the endorphin rush when you figure out a puzzle but you get that over and over and over again as you're trying to get out of the room yeah. that when it came to the last puzzle mm. which was really cool you had to take a gun and point it at the door <laughs> oh God, it wasn't okay. a real gun it wasn't a real gun sure. had to take a gun and point it like at the lock of the door to exit and pull the trigger and there was like some magnet mechanism oh. which unlocked the door to get out stunning stuff yeah this was at cypher room in uh newtown in mm -hmm. sydney and I can say that because I'm pretty sure that they've they've cycled through that game it was many years ago now but I was so excited to do that I had figured out what we needed to do I literally snatched the gun out of my friend's hand and ran towards the door and pulled the trigger and got out. Like, they had just found the gun. They picked it up. <laughs> I didn't even think. I didn't ask. I snatched it out of their hand like a naughty child. Great. And ran to complete the puzzle. That's the only way to do it. You've got to be a bit aggressive. I mean, I love escape rooms. There's a great Jumanji-themed escape room at Rush in Paran in Melbourne. And what they don't tell you is at one point, it's very immersive and very convincing, but at one point you solve a puzzle and a uh, monkey swings out of the darkness right at your face. And um... and pisses on you and you collect the piss and identify whether or not it's going through <laughs> menopause. Everything comes full circle. <laughs> maybe someone else in the room was the one emitting the piss. It was very scary. I think there were some complaints, but it was a really good experience. But what it brought out, Rad, was that side of you that you mentioned where you do become a bit, a little bit, uh, 
little bit fight or flight, a little bit competitive, a little bit intense. And so it was with great trepidation that I wandered into Funko's Ooh. new board game, which is called Star Trek Cryptic. It's basically a escape room at home. So you get three little folio envelopes. You open each one and each one is like a... It's a proper escape room experience. You get out your log and you start reading through it and it's a narrative-based uh, escape room. So there's puzzles and there's traps. There's a tricorder bit where you have to use um, like weird visual filters and there's magic eye stuff. Anyway, uh, I discovered that I get quite moody if somebody in the room is solving puzzles at a rate that clips me because I'm having mm. a, like a kind of slow day. So I got quite... We had a fight, basically. We had a bit of a fight. It it caused some conflict. And I know that in the high-pressure environment of being on a, you know, Starfleet vessel and you're under fire, that's going to happen. Like, there's going to be conflict. But when you're sitting there and you've forced somebody to sit down and... Look, I get a bit weird with board games that have uh, links to established franchises. I put on the soundtrack. I did the lighting. I do accents. I get, like, a little bit... I'll get into it a little bit. You're disgustingly down for whatever comes around. You're absolutely right. This is why we make this podcast, because we're both that type of person. We're like, I want the whole hog experience. That's it. And I think, actually, you know what? Thank you, because I think my annoyance was less at the being outpaced. It was because it took me longer to do the puzzles because I was doing it (laughs) at a rate that felt, like, thematically in character. I was, you know, I wasn't... Hmm. Sometimes when you're in an escape room environment, they say, look... Uh, please don't unscrew shit from the walls. Like, don't break down doors. Of course you can kick that door down, right? Of course, I get it. I get that it's a Bucks night, guys, but please just, it's more fun if you pretend you're in the universe and you're in character, right? So I think what was actually slowing me down was the fact that I had to do a British accent because the officer I was playing was a British man who sometimes had to pause between... Yeah, maybe I am dumb. I'm sorry, were you talking to each other though like why did you need to speak if you're solving puzzles so you have to read like log entries and you have to do like little bits of exposition and oh so you were reading them out loud i actually get that because otherwise there's kind of no point Mm. in buying this you know what i mean like if you just want the completely stripped back puzzles you can actually go online and find sort of escape room games that you can download and they have the puzzles for you. They tell you what to do. Mm. My sister actually ran one for my dad during lockdown for his birthday or something like that as a bit of a fun thing to do. So if you're going to go out and purchase a board game Mm. that's themed, that has given you all the flavor text and all the rest of it, it does make sense to savor that experience. Just lean in a bit. Like, honestly, as we've discussed on the show many times, and this is part of the reason we, we like hanging out with each other is because we both like things, I think, very hard. Why, why kind of go halfway on it? I mean, I took my parents to an escape room for my dad's 60th birthday, and this is a couple of years back. And I assumed that because my mum and dad were ex-cops, that they would dive into the investigatory aspect of it with, with glee. But instead, they were so annoyed and distracted by what they regarded as kind of silly trappings that they couldn't actually focus on the puzzles. So maybe there are like different settings of immersion. And I think when you get a board game and it says uh, age bracket, amount of time to play, I think how intensely lame this may or may not be out of 10 might actually help some parties going in. So one of the things that most escape rooms are limited by is once you've played it, you know the puzzles. Yeah. There's no more. You can't go again. This sounds like it 
would be the same or similar thing, especially if there's things, mm. you know, hidden in the lining of the box. Once you pull those out, you know it's there. Like, you're not going to play that again. How much replayability is there? Zero. I mean, once you're done, yeah. Oh. You're basically buying three nights out. They get increasingly hard. So the second one, we're still stuck on the second one, and it's a bastard. I mean, it's really tricky. So it's a fun sort of episodic thing to dive through, but... Sometimes I really, and we've talked about this with video games too, I don't need a game to be 400 hours long. There's nothing wrong with a fun, finite experience. But when you go to an escape room, you're paying about, what, 50 bucks each? thereabouts i'm not sure i can't remember yeah yeah but it's it's not it's not super cheap because you're paying for things like uh the set dressing and there's probably a dude on the walkie talkie giving you uh condescending instructions in a fake irish accent like there's all that kind of fun goofy shit going on when i get this board game and i buy it the price point is actually i think decent enough that three nights out on a starship flying through space feels like a reasonable transaction. I think also, you know, when you're talking about escape rooms, the fact that you can only play them once, that does sort of mean that they need to put the price up because that means that their audience is smaller. There's They can't have repeat customers, so they need to make sure that each game that they create, mm. they get the, the profit's worth out of it. And some of these uh, puzzles are really, really complicated. And I'm sure while the game masters probably very much enjoy their jobs, I don't imagine that they're easy or quick to come up with. Were the puzzles in this in general, do you think, well thought out, worthwhile, exciting, or were they just sort of a bit lackluster board game puzzles that may have been really, really hard, but didn't have that same excitement as a monkey swinging from the ceiling. There were a few moments where I genuinely got very excited. So there's one point, and this is, it's not really a spoiler. So at one point it goes, hey, pull the center out of the box and flip it over. And you do that. And the other side of the box is like, it's a full engineering console. And you've got these little kind of isolinear chips. And you, for a moment, just for a moment, I was sitting in engineering on a starship, sliding isolinear chips into an engineering uh, switchboard. Now, that is the most specific, <laughs> specific type of enjoyment that only a specific type of nerd would enjoy. But I was so happy. And little things like that. They're not going to go, hey, uh, before you start, please go and put up some plaster in the corner and turn the lights down and whatever. It's all happening in a very confined environment. It's got to, I mean, it's got to fit into a box after all. It does sound like a bunch of fun and it sounds kind of cooler than any board game that I've played before, possibly. I love props. I love props in a board game. Yeah. But do you think that it's something that would be enjoyable for someone who is not a Star Trek fan? Oh, probably not. Although I will say this, there are ways to enjoy things you don't have a uh, background in, in terms of lore and stuff. It's really very surface level. I think if you know what Star Trek is, and you're up for throwing yourself into the proceedings, uh, you will have a good time. And that is the end of this episode of Game for Anything. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, remember, if you would like to see images of us hopefully looking hot, you can find us on social media. And if you would like to hear our voices also sounding hot, then you can subscribe to us on any podcast platform that you dang well choose. Uh, and, and I don't know, come back, listen again. See you next time. Bye. Bye.